If ApoB measurement in the blood exceeds a certain level, there are more ApoB particles circulating than the liver is clearing. And as that number goes up and up and up, the particles are obviously not being cleared by the liver. So where do they go? We have miles and miles of endothelium on our arteries. So they just pick the nearest artery and they crash it. And the ApoB particle carrying cholesterol, step one of atherogenesis is it passes through the endothelial lining, which is a one cell lining of every artery in our body. And now it's in the artery wall. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Thomas Dayspring, arguably one of a handful of leading experts in the world when it comes to understanding the role that lipids play in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Tom is a fellow of both the American College of Physicians and the National Lipid Association, and is certified in internal medicine and clinical lipidology. His resume is far too long to read, but just know you're in great hands. From writing textbooks on lipids, to publishing peer-reviewed papers, to being the associate editor of the Journal of Clinical Lipidology, and illustrating some of the finest lipid images I've seen, Tom is certainly at the top of his field. This conversation is the first part of a mini-series that we're doing. In this episode, we focus on the lipid transport system, how our body transports fats and cholesterol, and what goes wrong when we develop atherosclerosis, fatty plaque building up inside the artery wall. It goes without saying that this is a very complex area of science, but it is really important to understand things at some level of detail, or else it's very easy to be confused when presented with misinformation on social media. The details here matter, and my hope is that although it is complex, this episode gives you a greater appreciation for how this system works, what various terms mean, and what causes things to go wrong that ultimately ends up resulting in fatty plaque building up in our arteries, predisposing us to a heart attack or stroke. Stick with it, even if things don't land the first time. And if you are visually inclined, be sure to watch this on YouTube, where my team and I have worked with Tom to provide important illustrations that help explain some of the new concepts as we move through the conversation. And keep in mind, we will double back and re-emphasize some of these new concepts in the upcoming episodes, where we delve into assessing your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and interventions that can help you lower risk. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death globally. Statistically speaking, the most likely reason our life will be cut short. If we really care about our health span and longevity, we have to study this. And as Tom says, take control of our health and optimize our lipids as early in life as possible. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Thomas Dayspring. He's certainly an inspiration to me and to many others who are passionate about preventative cardiology. So it was a real pleasure to have this time with him and to be able to share it with you. Please enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker 
is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Tom Dayspring, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be doing this. And likewise. Firstly, I, I have to say thank you for, for all of the work that you do, um, your communication through published papers, chapters in books, the illustrations, particularly um, the tweets that you do and the podcasts and, and everything that you do with, with such high energy. It's really, it's helped me personally try and uh, make sense of what is a very complex system in our body. Uh, that transports fats and cholesterol and where these things can go wrong that that lead to disease so thank you for for all that you do i really appreciate it no it's been a great pleasure you know i'm a self-taught lipidologist and uh spent a long time learning it and thank god as i learned that i somehow picked up the ability to explain it to others and probably my real claim to fame, as you mentioned, I'm a pretty good illustrator with PowerPoint. And there's nothing that's a better teacher than illustrations rather than the written word or spoken word. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Uh, and and I guess I should point out that we'll try and include a number of those illustrations where it makes sense. So if you're listening to this on audio, uh, be aware there will also be a video format on YouTube. So if you are someone that is a little bit more of a visual learner, then you can hop over and, and, and make the most of that as well. 
Tom, I, I have kind of three main goals for this part of our conversation. And they are to explain the system that the body uses to transport fats and, and cholesterol so people are aware of what this system is. And, and then to kind of explain where this system can go awry and, and how that can increase the risk of atherosclerosis, the, the buildup of cholesterol in the artery wall. And the third goal is to have fun. So that's the challenge that I'm throwing out for us today. Uh, does that sound like a realistic set of goals? No, it sure does. And if you do these type of teachings or interviews and they're not fun, nobody's going to listen or watch. <laughs> so we'll definitely, right. uh, you see, I'm smiling already. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll try our best there. I, I haven't shared this with you, uh, and you may not be aware of this, but the reason that I'm, I'm really passionate about this topic and, and sort of helping people understand the things that they can do to prevent cardiovascular disease goes back actually, Tom, to when I was 15 years old. And I grew up in Melbourne in, in Australia. And uh, my parents were divorced when I was about 10 or so. And I'd spend every second weekend with my dad. And so these were times that I really cherished. And on, on one weekend, we were out driving in the Yarra Valley. This is a, a wine district known for Chardonnay and, and Pinot, uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, it wasn't so much about the wine. It was just spending time together, right? And we would, we would go around and hop from winery to winery. And on this one particular day, it was just my dad and, and I. My brother would often come, but he wasn't there. We were driving back home. And it was a Sunday because I remember I had school the next day. And my dad started to get some pain in his chest and was sort of rubbing his chest and his shoulder and I, I inquired and, and asked if he was okay. I could tell that he was uncomfortable. And he kind of assured me, no, it's, it's okay. He thought maybe it was indigestion or you know, heartburn or something and sort of downplayed it, perhaps to, to kind of protect me and, and, and uh, to, to not get me kind of worried about what he was experiencing. And so we, we, we got home and we cooked dinner and and by this time he said you know he felt a bit better and so we had dinner and, and i went off to bed and a couple hours later tom i woke to some noise in the kitchen and i thought well i better go and check and see how my dad's doing and i went out and by this stage he he could no longer deny what was happening it was very evident he was out of breath he was kind of kneeling over and he was, he had called triple zero, which is the, the 911 number in Australia. And they asked him to, if there was anyone else there that, that could speak to them to kind of describe this, the situation. And so that was me. And uh, very quickly they said, based on your location, because we were quite remote, we were, at, we were about an hour drive to the nearest main hospital. They said, we're going to send a helicopter. And they, they sent a helicopter, it came before I knew it, everything was happening you know, at rapid pace and they came in and scooped my dad up and put him onto a, a stretcher and hooked him up to oxygen and, and all of the different, you know, checking his pulse and, and whatnot. And before I knew it, he was in the helicopter and taken to the hospital. And I was uh, put into to the, the ambulance and, and went 
uh, by road to meet him at the hospital. Um, and so we, that was a long drive, um, and got to the hospital and, you know, they saved his life. They gave him anti-thrombotic medication uh, um, and stabilized him. And, you know, he found out that he had very high cholesterol, he had high blood pressure, um, and since then, you know, has been on sort of antihypertensives and a statin and azetamibe, some of these drugs that might come up um, during our conversation. And, you know, he's, he's still going strong today, 20 plus years later. So um, great outcome. Uh, but I guess that moment kind of, for me, I saw firsthand what this disease can do. And I kind of realized that my dad was very lucky and not everyone in that, that scenario is that lucky. Um, so very thankful for, for modern medicine. But now I guess I have this, this deep passion for better understanding the disease and, and doing my best to speak to people like you to help communicate the science to people so that they can prevent it, make changes in their life and, um, and, and get on top of a disease because it really feels like we have a lot of information and we could be doing a much better job at preventing this. Is that how you feel? Oh, I sure do. And you, you, you know, you had a happy ending to that story, but imagine if your dad would have passed when you were out in the outback there, you being alone with a dead man. Got that would, I don't know how that would have affected the rest of your life mentally or so, but it, listen, it's a similar scenario. Why am I, how did, why did they even d decided to pick up lipids? Look, I graduated med school in 72. I call it the dark ages. And, uh, but it was a cool time because they had just invented the concept of a coronary care unit and coronary bypass and coronary angiography was uh, showed up at that time. So it was like the real exciting place to be. But at that time, and there was so much heart disease, acute heart disease, cases like your father, acute coronary syndromes, that when they showed up in the hospital in 1972, we gave them a bed, we gave them oxygen, and that was it. There was nothing we could do. We might treat an arrhythmia or something like that. But, and so many of them just died, half of them by the next morning. So it was soon in my life that I realized, God, if I want to have a happier life as an internist, I have to learn everything I possibly can about atherosclerotic heart disease. Blood pressure pills came along first. I jumped on that bandwagon. But it's the appearance of the science of lipidology that really made massive inroads in slaying this disease. And I did jump on the bandwagon in a very early stage. So just uh, the same thing. It's no fun witnessing people having heart attacks. And especially when you're a physician, you know, I really can't do much. How do you think we're going today with, with all of the information that we have and, and what you understand about lipids and atherosclerosis and and preventing this disease how are we going we're not going anywhere near as fast as we should that's for sure because we absolutely have the facts and realization now that if early in uh, people's lives we can periodically evaluate them with the whole variety of diagnostic tools that we now have readily available we can at a young age ascertain uh-oh there is going to be atherosclerotic whatever in this man or this woman's future. 
but I have identified what we know to be very treatable risk factors. And the sooner in life you recognize that risk and you treat it appropriately, I think you can eliminate atherosclerotic disease as a morbidity and certainly as a mortality. I find it so sad. Your dad could have died, but every day we pick up the paper, put on the TV and some famous person croaked of a heart attack. And I deep down know that was totally preventable. If a decade or two ago, somebody would have done a proper evaluation. So uh, the the mission is to get everybody except that common sense realization, do these tests, and then just don't say, hey, oh, these tests are abnormal, but they're not that bad. I'm not worried about it. That's malpractice. You got to start aggressively treating with, and we have many modes of therapeutics. You know, it doesn't mean everybody goes on three drugs when they're 18 years old, but we have ways of just halting atherogenesis. Uh, but it's slow to catch on. It, as tragic as that seems, I believe globally it's the number one cause of morbidity and mortality, for goodness sakes. So I don't know why more people aren't looking for the, the signs, the biomarker signs, the imaging signs of this disease and saying, sir, ma'am, you have a problem. Here's the good news. For almost all of the people, I can really reduce the outcomes that are likely coming your way. Yeah, well, I'm hoping through this conversation and the the next couple that we have we can shed some light on on assessing risk and some of the key things to look at at a high level here so we're talking about atherosclerosis which is the build-up of this fatty plaque in the in the artery wall um, is that the the most common cause of cardiovascular disease yeah, the word cardiovascular disease is a humongous category. There's so many afflictions that can affect the heart and the blood vessels. But the most frequent one that we see all the time, the one that is putting people in the CCU or, God forbid, in the graveyard, the bypass unit, is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And notice I didn't say coronary artery disease because atherosclerosis can occur in several of the arteries that carry blood in our body, our neck, our brain, our abdominal organs, our peripheral legs and extremities, all of those can build up these plaques that lead to all sorts of uh, bad things. It doesn't include cardiomyopathies and uh, arrhythmia is not caused by ischemic disease or congenital diseases. There's so many other uh, immense field of cardiology and cardiological diseases. Tonight, we're talking about the most common one. So you mentioned before that there are a number of risk factors that have been established. So at a high level, when it comes to atherosclerosis, if we're thinking about what is increasing our risk, what are the, the sort of the top handful of risk factors that would contribute to the development of that fatty plaque buildup? And we should say there's really two things we're looking at. One are risk factors. They're pretty much, if they're abnormal, they're causal of the disease. And then there's a bunch of things we call risk marker that would add to whatever risk that the risk factors outline, but they're not treatable per se. Risk factors, because they're causal, if there is a therapy, they're treatable. So to do the best risk assessment, we use both risk factors and there are numerous risk markers and you put them together, and at least in their blood tests, their biomarkers, uh, we have a pretty good idea what we're dealing with. We have other tools to further elucidate the extent of a 
is there atherosclerotic disease present or not, but risk factors and then risk markers are the everyday tools readily available throughout the world for the most part, rather cheap. Right. And so some of these are things like high blood pressure, um, elevated LDL cholesterol. Smoking probably leads the list. So uh, if you smoke, good luck to you. you you're, you're subjecting your body likely to a lot of things. So uh, we take that out of the picture. We're not going to discuss that tonight. The others, high blood pressure and lipid disturbances or two and three or three and two, however what you want to list them. And if either of those have abnormalities there with the tests we use to make that hypertension or lipid diagnosis, they require serious treatment. Uh, look, there's things we can't do anything about. Male gender is a bigger risk factor until later in life. Then females take over, but men do get heart attacks younger for the most part than women. So things like that. Age is a major risk factor. I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> well, there there are some people that are that are working on that. I believe. Yeah, no, my good buddy Peter Atti is sure trying. Yeah, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, the focus of this is is on lipids. Our conversation, anyway, um, which, as you mentioned, is a can be a major uh, risk factor when there are disturbances. I think for people to appreciate the disturbances, first we have to understand the system. We have to understand what are lipids, um, how our body transports these, and what the purpose of that system is. So perhaps we can start there. Yeah, you absolutely have to start there because the lipids, I, I mean, how many times have I said that in my life? But many of the average layman may not even know what a lipid is if he was asked on the street, hey, what's a lipid? Uh, so a lipid is basically an organic molecule. Organic molecule means it's carbon and hydrogen atoms that are all stuck together in various configurations. But it's an organic molecule that is not soluble in water. So, and the simplest thing is, hey, take olive oil, take a glass of water, pour it together, and the olive oil doesn't freely mix. My joke is, hey, if I did doers in water, scotch in water, <laughs> they're very miscible. You couldn't, there's no droplets in that glass. So lipids are not soluble. And this presents, so any molecule that is not soluble in water is under the lipid classification. Now it's a family of a lot of different molecules. And the ones we're going to spend most of the, the time on in our podcasts are going to be sterols. And the most common sterol is cholesterol. And then the fatty acids and the fatty acids usually are part of a lipid called phospholipids or triacylglycerol, triglycerides. So those are mostly the lipids that we're going to be talking about. How in the world are they related to cardiovascular risk or uh, atherogenesis, the buildup of plaque? So that's what lipids are. And with that simple introduction, here's the whole darn dilemma. There's no human life without lipids. We need fatty acids for energy. We absolutely need cholesterol for our cell membranes. They provide integrity and the ability for membranes to signal no cholesterol, no cell membranes, no cells, no podcast tonight if you and I weren't constructed of cells. So cholesterol also is a precursor to several hormones that are necessary for life. And cholesterol is the substance from which the liver makes bile acids. And if it didn't make them, we couldn't absorb anything and we'd be in a bad way too. So cholesterol is so crucial that evolution knew 
we have to give every cell in the body the ability to manufacture, synthesize cholesterol. And we also have to maybe develop a lipid transportation system that could track lipids, the energy-carrying lipids like triglycerides, and even cholesterol if needed to a tissue that says, hey, I need cholesterol. It has to go from where cholesterol is being produced to somebody who wants to use it. And that is the problem because plasma is our vehicle, how we transport things in the human body. And plasma is pretty much a total aqueous water solution. So if the liver or any other tissue is making lipids, it just can't dump them in the plasma, no more than you can pour olive oil in that glass of water. So evolution, which solves a lot of problems, said way early, whenever it started and whatever species it started, we have to develop a lipid transportation system for humans so lipids can go here, there, and everywhere, or perhaps brought back to an organ that can get rid of excess lipids that are not needed. So all that was necessary was the chemistry realization that if you stick lipids on a protein, proteins for the most part are water-soluble. If I have a collection of lipids bound to a protein, that is a lipid transportation vehicle. And obviously, you would call that a lipoprotein because it consists of lipids and a protein or more than one protein. So our body was given the ability to produce lipid-carrying molecules called a lipoprotein. And two organs were blessed with the ability to make lipoproteins. Our intestine, because as you can imagine, we're absorbing lipids from the gut lumen and into the intestine. But for the intestine to send those lipids to where they might be needed, it has to wrap them with a protein and then secrete that protein into the systemic circulation. So the intestine can make a lipoprotein. And the only other organ that can make a lipoprotein is basically our master chemical control system called the liver, which makes everything we pretty much need in the body. So if the liver can take collections of lipids, wrap it with a protein and secrete it into the plasma. So here, all of a sudden, we've got these spherical large particles carrying various uh, lipid components, and they can go and bring lipids to whatever cell might need them. And if that cell needs a lipid, it would upregulate a receptor that internalizes the lipoprotein with its content. But equally important is if a cell had too much lipids, and look, too many fatty acids, inflammation, if it's the liver, fatty liver, too much cholesterol in any cell in your body will crystallize and kill that cell. So once a cell has above a very slight threshold of cellular cholesterol, it has to get rid of it. Now that cell just can't pump it out into the blood. <laughs> no, it has to pump it out into a lipid carrying vehicle, and that would be a lipoprotein. So cells that have excess lipids can say, hey, Mr. Lipoprotein, please take this from me and please take it to somewhere that can use it or eliminate it from the body. So lipids, cholesterol and triglycerides that I have spoken about are trafficked within these little circulating fat protein enwrapped fat balls called lipoproteins. But lipoproteins take lipids in a forward direction from the intestine or liver to various cells or in a reverse direction from cells back to the liver and say, you deal with it. Uh, and the liver is very skilled at handling excess lipids, eliminating them or changing them into other things. 
There could be some side uh, trips if a lipoprotein is carrying triglycerides, which is basically a, a form of energy because there's three fatty acids on it, which if oxidized will create ATP. That lipoprotein could stop at a triglyceride storage organ called adipocytes. Our fat cells would say, oh, I'm happy to take some of the triglycerides and I'll keep them here until uh, uh, the body needs them again and then I'll release them. And uh, you could, a lipoprotein could bring, especially cholesterol, not triglycerides, to those steroidogenic organs I talked about, uh, cholesterol being a precursor to several hormones. So the adrenal cortex sometimes needs cholesterol from a lipoprotein. Our uh, gonads sometimes needs cholesterol from a lipoprotein to synthesize the various things they're doing. So you can see lipoproteins, it's the lipid transportation system, and there could be several pit stops along the way. As we get into this, what's fun is what makes a lipoprotein go there, 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 and it's all regulated by a variety of enzymes and receptors. It's such a fascinating little system we have, but it's basically the lipid transportation system. And my famous words, I've said it a million times, lipids go nowhere in the human body unless a lipoprotein brings them there. Of course, unless the cell is synthesizing its own lipids, but... Uh, and that happens pretty much with cholesterol, but not so much. Only a few organs can synthesize triglycerides. Trigs have to be delivered to the organs that need energy. Okay. So these lipoproteins are essentially transport vehicles for the triglycerides and for the cholesterol, which are unable to transport to move through circulation unless they're attached to this protein. That's what makes them solid. One more little caveat there. These particles, I've talked about the protein, I've talked about triglycerides and cholesterol, but these are fat balls and there is a one molecule layer surface on every one of these particles. And that's where this class of lipids I've mentioned comes in, phospholipids. Now, phospholipids are as crucial as is cholesterol for the construction of cell membranes in the body. Most of the phospholipids are pretty much made in the intestine or the liver. So in the liver or the intestine, when it makes these particles, it wraps them with phospholipids. And so another thing these uh, lipoproteins can deliver is phospholipids to where they are needed. We never talk about that in lipidology because we measure triglycerides on everybody. We measure various cholesterol metrics on everybody. Nobody measures phospholipids, but they're a super integral part of this whole lipid transportation story. More on them later. Yeah, let's come back to that. I'm going to put a, put a pin in that. We'll make sure we, we come back to it. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, 
important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. You mentioned that lipoproteins are synthesized in two locations. So in the intestine and then also by the liver. So perhaps we double click on that and we start to think about what are the different types of lipoproteins that the body is producing. Yes. And there's always a caveat in lipidology. So yes, the, the lipoproteins that are so crucial that are synthesized in the intestine or the liver are two of the class, one class of lipoproteins, but there is another class of lipoproteins that are not made in liver cells, are not made in intestinal cells. They self-create themselves in the plasma. And those will be our high density lipoproteins, our HDLs. And what this makes, how you distinguish them from the, all the other lipoproteins, chylomicrons coming out of the intestine, very low density lipoproteins co coming out of the liver, the byproduct of a VLDL, which would be an intermediate density lipoprotein, or our friend, Mr. LDL, low density lipoprotein, which can be directly made and synthesized out of the liver or could be the byproduct of VLDL and IDL catabolism. As they lose their lipids, they get smaller, 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 and you go from very low density to intermediate to low density. So, but the VLDLs, IDLs, LDLs, and the chylomicrons, we differentiate them from the HDL particles because of the protein that enwraps these particles, giving them structure and stability. Chylos, VLDLs, IDLs, and LDLs have one major monster integrity structural protein in wrapping them and it's called apolipoprotein b apo apo for b for short and thank goodness there is just one apo b per apo b particle 
So that lends itself to being a fantastic laboratory measurement. If we just measure ApoB concentration in the blood, we are actually counting all of the ApoB particles. For short, we call them the beta lipoproteins. So it's a big family, chylos, VLDLs, IDLs, and LDLs. Whereas the ApoA1 family, ApoA1 is the structural protein of our HDL particles. Both the liver and intestine manufacture ApoA1, the protein, but they secrete it. And then you have free ApoA1 floating. It's a protein. It can circulate in the plasma, but it virtually instantly attaches to cells that are willing to give up cholesterol. And the little ApoA1 starts what we call lipidating with cholesterol molecules. And before you know it, you have more mature, more mature, big HDL particles self-constructed in the liver and the plasma, whereas the ApoB particles are made in those two tissues and secreted. You you mentioned a few a few things there. I want to I want to unpack. So we eat a meal and that contains some fats and let's say there's some dietary cholesterol in there as well that comes in. Th- down the esophagus, it goes into the stomach, it comes into the small intestine. And our body says, well, let's absorb some of those fats. That's that's an energy store, that's great. And um, it may pull in some of that dietary cholesterol, I believe, along with some other cholesterol that's in the intestine that could have come from the liver. I'll get you to unpack this, but I'm, I'm just gonna try and summarize. The, 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 in the intestine there, those the fats and the cholesterol get packaged into these lipoproteins at that stage called chylomicrons. When you have whatever collection of lipids in your intestine, cause you swallowed them and there could be cholesterol. There's almost certainly fatty acids. You may have swallowed them as triglycerides, but the intestine hydrolyzes them to fatty acids. So once these lipids are coming out of your stomach, what's the duodenum is the first part of the small intestine, but there's a duct that empties into the duodenum and the uh, pancreatic duct secretes all these enzymes that'll dissolve uh, the uh, various lipids. Uh, even the cholesterol we eat, most of it is in a sterified form of cholesterol, cholesterol ester, which is too big to be absorbed. It has to be de-esterified by pancreatic enzymes. So once those lipases from the pancreas and we have a whole bunch of absorbable lipids, fatty acids, cholesterol, phospholipids. There may be some phytosterols because you ate plants. Uh, they have to be brought to the what we call the brush border of the small intestine. That's a, ton, a bunch of villi that stick out. So you can imagine the surface area that that gives. But before, how do the lipids find their way to those microvilli of the brush border? There's actually an intestinal lipid transportation vehicle. And thank God, our liver happily secreted bile acids down the bile duct into the intestine, comes out in the duodenum, and bile acids round up the lipids. And when you have bile acids surrounding fatty acids, cholesterol, phospholipids, phytosterols, they're called biliary micelles. Mm -hmm. It's basically an intestinal lipoprotein, but there's no protein involved with it because the protein would be catabolized in the intestine to amino acids. So the biliary micelles, which are lipid-carrying packages, they go into the brush border of the small intestine. And on that 
surface area, we have a bunch of receptors, distinct receptors. There are receptors that recognize the fatty acids and pull fat. They're called fatty acid transport proteins. They pull fatty acids into the enterocyte, which is the intestinal cell. But there are also sterol um, recognizing uh, receptors. The major one is called the Neiman Pick C1 like one, NPC 1L1. Uh, it recognizes any sterols that are in that biliary micelle and it pulls them into your intestine. So step one of absorption is, hey, fatty acids found their way into the enterocytes, cholesterol, maybe some phytosterols got in here, phospholipids partially hydrolyzed, they got in too. So now it's the job of the intestine to take all these primitive organic lipid molecules the fatty acids get resynthesized into triglycerides. Cholesterol, most of it gets reesterified to cholesterol ester. The phospholipids pick up a one other fatty acid. So they, uh, a phospholipid with one fatty acid called the lysophospholipid, but most phospholipids need two fatty acid legs. So it acquires one. Now, all of a sudden, the enterocyte has a pool of phospholipids, triglycerides, and cholesterol ester. Some of the cholesterol does not get esterified. That's called free or unesterified cholesterol. So what does the intestine do with this new glob of lipids it's got? It doesn't want it. You can't keep the lipids because they too much lipids cause injury to cells. So then they do what you hinted at. The enterocyte says, oh, here's the ApoB protein I made. I'm going to take all those lipids, stick them on ApoB, and I just made a chylomicron. And the, the intestine releases the chylomicron, not into the bloodstream, but into our lymphatic system. Mm. The lymphatic circulatory system, nobody thinks about it, but it's a major transporter of so many things. So the chylomicrons, which are gigantic, by far our biggest lipoprotein, go up the lymphatic circulation, which ultimately enters into the blood vessels in the neck, the thoracic duct, it's called. And then all of a sudden, the big chylomicrons are in the bloodstream. Then the chylomicron can go wherever it wants to go to deliver its lipid load. And by far, the primary lipid load of the chylomicron is triglycerides because we just ate all those fats. The, now the chylomicron knows exactly who wants fats for energy. And it's people like you who use your muscles. Muscles need energy. So the first pit stop of the chylomicron is it goes to muscular beds. Now, if you want your heart to keep pumping, pumping, that's a muscular bed too. So chylomicrons are a major supplier of energy in the form of triglycerides to skeletal muscles, cardiac muscle, and any other muscle in our body. Smooth muscle cells need energy too. And how does a chylomicron know to stop like in your muscular beds or in, in your myocardial beds? Easy. Because those tissues, when they need energy, triglycerides, they express triglyceride-dissolving enzymes. The major one is called lipoprotein lipase. So here comes this big fat chylomicron. It pulls into your deltoid muscle. You're going to work out. The deltoid muscle needs energy. It will express copious amounts of lipoprotein lipase. There's a protein on the chylomicron that is a ligand for lipoprotein lipase. And the triglycerides get hydrolyzed. That means the fatty acids break away from their glycerol backbone. The chylomicron releases those uh, fatty acids and the uh, deltoid muscle says, thank you. And they are just pulled right into the uh, 
deltoid muscle or any other muscle in your body, and they're happy. Now they can start beta, beta oxidation of that fatty acid and create ATP. But you can imagine this. If a chylomicron is supplying copious amounts of triglycerides, and it's by far the biggest triglyceride carrier, sooner or later it's going to lose its triglycerides. And what will happen to a big balloon fill of triglycerides when you start like taking the air out of the balloon? It shrinks. The balloon would shrivel, but the chylomicron starts to crumble. Its diameter decreases. And when it does, what has to be released? Whatever's on the surface of the chylomicron phospholipids. So phospholipids break off from the chylomicrons as they're undergoing what we call lipolysis, hydrolyzing their triglycerides, becoming a smaller chylomicron. And because it's smaller, we call it a remnant chylomicron. What did the muscle not take out of the chylomicron? Cholesterol. <laughs> muscle, if it needs cholesterol, it'll de novo make it through synthesis. It doesn't need a delivery of cholesterol. So the chylomicron loses trigs, loses surface phospholipids, but it loses no cholesterol. And that's why the cholesterol remnants are basically cholesterol-rich chylomicron particles. They've lost much of their triglycerides. Now, the good news is when the particle shrinks, there's another protein on its surface called ApoE, several copies of it. So, and once there's a particle shrink, APOE assumes sort of a different conformation. APOE happens to be a major ligand for the two receptors in the liver that clear APOB particles. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the LDL receptor-related protein, LRP, which APOE is what it recognizes, and the LDL receptor recognizes APOE. So chylomicrons, their half-life is in minutes, uh, their plasma residence time is two hours because our body is just so efficient at hydrolyzing the energy that the tissues need. It disappears. Once it shrinks, APOE pops up, boom, the liver grabs it and it's cleared. That's why it has a very short plasma residence, but it successfully did what it was supposed to do, bring energy to the muscles. So it's just a fascinating uh, story uh, on how quickly it comes and goes. Uh, and this is why if you get a blood test and you want to me measure chylomicrons, it has to be a postprandial blood test. Because if you're fasting, the chylomicrons are gone in a couple of hours. So if you fasted for 12 hours, unless you have a bizarre lipid disorder, there will be no chylomicrons in your blood. So when you do a fasting triglyceride, and of course, we there will be triglycerides in your fasting specimen. They're not from chylomicrons. So I don't have to give you the whole story again, but what is a VLDL produced by the liver? It's basically a smaller chylomicron, but it's a triglyceride phospholipid delivering vehicle. So the VLDL goes to those same damn muscles after the liver secretes it. It undergoes the same hydrolysis with the same enzyme, and the VLDLs deliver triglycerides. They deliver no cholesterol, and once they shrink, they either become an IDL or the liver rapidly clears the VLDL remnants. So the half-life of a VLDL is a couple of hours. Its plasma residence time is six hours, eight hours. So that's the delivery of energy. But a wonderful part of that story is when the VLDLs and the chylomicrons are shrinking, undergoing lipolysis, what are they shedding? Their surface phospholipids. And where do they go? 
they either can jump into con- next to the contiguous cell that the the particle is again uh, butted against because cells need phospholipids, but most of those phospholipids are grabbed by another protein that floats in our blood. It's a phospholipid scavenger protein called phospholipid transfer protein. So what does this protein that now gathers several molecules of phospholipids do with them? Now we're going to introduce our little baby friends, HDL particles. I told you the liver intestine secreted ApoA1. It's going to cells because it accepts cholesterol. It's being effluxed out of any cell that doesn't want cholesterol. But if ApoA1 has now gathering cholesterol molecules, how can it mature into a big HDL particle? What does it need on its surface? Phospholipids. So the phospholipids that were shed by chylos and VLDLs, grabbed by phospholipid transfer protein, are raced to the maturing little baby HDL, which allows the HDL to grow and grow and become a big, mature, very cholesterol-laden HDL particle. What you should be gathering by this is, wow, our lipoproteins, yes, they're a cool lipid transportation system, but they work hand-in-hand to help each other build up, empty, and so they're all related. You can't change one without changing the other, and that sometimes will show up in the metrics we measure. So that's the delivery of the triglycerides. The cholesterol that was in any VLDL particles or chylos once they're depleted of their triglycerides, is rapidly returned to the liver. If their VLDLs and chylomicrons do not deliver cholesterol molecules to any cell. But I did say some of the VLDLs, not chylos, VLDLs, when they lose trigs before the liver or as the liver is clearing them, some of them don't get cleared. They become intermediate density lipoproteins. It's basically a smaller VLDL remnant. There's a little bit of trigs in them, still a lot of cholesterol, the same amount that was in the VLDL. And the IDL's half-life is like an hour, doesn't linger at all. Why? Because the LDL receptor in the liver is trying to, they grab IDLs because the ligand for an LDL receptor is the ApoB that's on the IDL and the ApoE, which is still on an IDL. So they have no plasma residence time. As an IDL is being cleared at the liver, the liver has a surface enzyme called hepatic lipase, and it grabs some of those LD, uh, IDLs that the receptors try and internalize, but it causes further lipolysis. So the IDL shrinks. It's not internalized. It becomes what? A smaller IDL, a low-density lipoprotein. Now, an LDL is devoid of ApoE. It's only got this ApoB on it. So LDL receptors prefer to clear particles with ApoE and ApoB on it. So all of a sudden, LDL receptors are third in line for particles that the liver wants to clear. That means LDL particles have an immensely longer plasma residence time than do chylos for sure, VLDLs, IDLs. They're all a matter of hours. The LDL hangs around from two to three to four to five days. Wow. Now, that's not a mistake. Evolution wanted an LDL to hang around for that long. So why? And most people will say, oh, Tom, because the LDL has very little triglycerides. It's mostly carrying cholesterol. It's going to go deliver cholesterol. Almost never. 
Maybe in a pinch, if the adrenal gland is overworking because you're in septic shock and you got to make two tons of cortisone today, the uh, adrenal cortex will upregulate LDL receptors and the LDL can supply it. Gonads virtually never express LDL receptors to clear LDL particles to get cholesterol because gonads synthesize a ton of cholesterol or if they really needed extra cholesterol, they would extract it from not LDL, but HDL particles. By the way, and this is why you could have an LDL cholesterol of 10 and have no gonadal dysfunction or no adrenal cortical dysfunction because LDL doesn't supply those organs with their cholesterol. So keep that in mind. So uh, here, why do LDLs hang around for so long? There's got to be a purpose because you know if LDL particles exceed a certain threshold, bingo, right into your artery wall, creating that disease, atherosclerosis, that we don't want. So here's why an LDL hangs around, hopefully in physiologic concentrations. I've hinted that ApoA1 extracts cholesterol from any cells that is trying to get rid of unneeded cholesterol and forming bigger and bigger and bigger HDL particles. Now, everybody thinks, oh, and then the HDL just scoots it back to the liver. That's reverse cholesterol transport. Nope. Could be. An HDL can do that if it so fits, but then the HDL might be destroyed at the liver. It takes time to go to the liver. Would there be a quicker way for an HDL to get its cholesterol back to the liver? Yep. Evolution gave us a lipid tra uh, transfer protein called CETP, cholesterol ester transfer protein. It really should be called CETTP, cholesterol ester triglyceride transfer protein, because it's mostly that's a protein that's carried on HDLs. But if an HDL full of cholesterol, or a bit, excuse me, uh, an HDL that has cholesterol bumps into an LDL, that CETP it's almost like it gets an erection, the HDL particle. CETP sticks up and it penetrates the LDL particle. So all of a sudden, the HDLs and LDLs are going to transfer their internal fluids. They're having sex with one another. So one molecule of cholesterol goes from the LDL, excuse me, from the HDL to the LDL. But in return, the LDL will send a molecule of triglyceride to the HDL. So what would happen if that happens a bazillion times every minute? HDLs, which pulled cholesterol out of cells, which kept those cells healthy, prevented cholesterol toxicity, said, hey, LDL, do me a favor. Take my cholesterol. You bring it back to the liver for me. And when you deplete that HDL of cholesterol, it becomes smaller. It can go acquire more cholesterol. But if the HDL acquired triglycerides from the LDL or even the VLDL in exchange, once that HDL gets a little extra triglycerides, it is subject to triglyceride hydro hydrolysis from hepatic lipase. And that's how you create small HDLs. But good, they're the ones that can go and fill up back at the cells. Now, once the LDL has accepted cholesterol from an HDL, the LDL goes to the liver. Here are those LDL receptors. Bingo, grab the ApoB on the LDL particles and pull it into the liver. If LDLs take cholesterol from an HDL and they return it to the liver, what is the function of an LDL? Reverse cholesterol transport. That's why we evolved LDL particles. LDLs 
rarely deliver cholesterol to any peripheral tissues, and they can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so they sure as hell do not supply the brain with any cholesterol that the brain may need. I saw a tweet from you today that discussed that, and you were spot on. So here, reverse cholesterol transport, we all were taught, oh, it's just HDLs bringing cholesterol back to the liver. The liver then can get rid of it. Yes, HDLs can do that. That would be called direct reverse cholesterol transport. But if an HDL gives its cholesterol to an LDL and it returns it to the liver, that has been labeled as indirect reverse cholesterol transport. Total reverse cholesterol transport is direct plus indirect. And this is why looking at a serum HDL cholesterol provides zero insight as to this complicated pathway called reverse cholesterol transport. You could have an HDL cholesterol of 10, 5, and have phenomenal reverse cholesterol transport. You could have an HDL cholesterol of 160, have no reverse cholesterol transport. So we can't, doctors have to stop telling patients, oh, thank God your HDL cholesterol is high. You have great reverse cholesterol transport. Why, if, if reverse cholesterol transport is an HDL getting rid of cholesterol, why the hell would it be high? Doesn't even make sense to say that. So I'm going to pump back to you because I wander and I've tried to give you some of the complexities of this lipid transportation system. No, that was, that's incredible. I'm going to try and summarize a few things and you can tell me how I'm going, Go. where I'm going wrong. Okay. So what I'm going to try and do is talk to the origin of these different lipoproteins, where they're coming from, summarize some of that. So we have the enterocytes, which are, I guess we can, we can think about, you have this, the, the kind of small intestine, I guess we could say the lumen where the food is, the enterocytes sort of separate that from the lymphatic system. And the fats and the cholesterol that we eat, as well as any cholesterol that comes back into the intestine from the liver, um, can be sort of packaged up into these chylomicron lipoproteins that occurs in the enterocytes and will be um, affected by these receptors. Some of these receptors, like the, the Neiman Peak C1N1, or I know you've spoken about G5G8. We can come back to that later. Yeah, but I didn't mention um, that, but that's part of the story. <laughs> right. So, so there, some of that might explain why people um, sort of respond differently to, say, dietary cholesterol, for example. We could come back to that. But the, the point is that this is where the chylomicrons sort of um, – their origin and where they're synthesized and then they enter the lymphatic system they come into circulation they're providing a great source of energy for particularly for our muscle cells and they're also not hanging around very uh, a very long time uh, a very short residence time and they dump off some triglycerides they become smaller they become these chylomicron remnants and then they go back to the liver and the liver can the liver can kind of recycle those or, or do what it needs to do with them. Then the liver, the other um, or the second sort of primary place of synthesis of these lipoproteins is occurring in the liver. And the liver can produce, from what I heard, I previously thought it was just VLDLs, but I, in reading your work, I now understand it can actually produce LDLs as well and pump those straight out. So it produces these um, these let's say VLDL molecules, lipoproteins, pushes them out into circulation. 
they're now delivering triglycerides to tissues that need them. And as they dump off triglycerides, they become smaller. They, they then take on a new name where they're less triglyceride rich, they become IDLs. Same thing happens again. Um, and then they can become LDL molecules. And um, these LDL molecules, um, their uh, primary role is, sounds like it's to bring cholesterol back to the liver or in a system that's working well, they're bringing cholesterol back to the liver um, directly through the LDL receptor, but they're also taking cholesterol off of HDL particles. Does all of that sound right so far? Uh, you nailed it. You just left out the little crucial part about phospholipids being shed mm -hmm. so they can go okay. help HDLs mature. But you nailed it, Simon. Okay, so I understand the story up to there. And actually, it kind of makes me think about this entire system. When we think about cholesterol, given that every cell creates or can synthesize its own cholesterol and you sort of pointed out that very rarely will tissues need cholesterol that's been produced by the liver whether it's the adrenals or the testes for example um, so it kind of seems like the primary function of this system is to clear excess cholesterol from from cells and and get rid of it as opposed to a system that is set up to take cholesterol out to cells well you're very insightful i was told you're a smart guy so yeah and you've you've really analyzed this well but here's a and this is a higher level question but why the hell was cholesterol even put in the kylo or the vldl since it's not going to deliver it why you know let it just accept cholesterol from an hdl and bring that back so here's the reason cholesterol is in those particles. If a lipoprotein was not carrying X amount of lipids, it would be a flatbed truck. It'd be a small discoidal particle with no capacity to traffic other lipids. So cholesterol is put in there to make these, it's like partially blowing up the balloon with air, except the intestine and the liver partially fills up the chylos or the VLDLs with cholesterol, but they leave a lot of space for triglycerides. So, so cholesterol is just performing sort of a stoichiometric uh, principle of making big lipoproteins spherical. And, uh, even the HDL, the HDL does start off as a protein. So it is a little flatbed truck, but that can only carry 10 or 15 molecules of cholesterol. That would solve nothing. But as the HDL acquires cholesterol and the phospholipids, it evolves from a discoid particle into a big round spherical HDL that can carry a significant amount more of cholesterol. So cholesterol is basically helping shape and create the volume in lipoproteins. It's not put in there to go be delivered somewhere. Yes, in an emergency, it could deliver it, but that emergency rarely arises, you know, until we're dying and, you know, cancer, they need cholesterol. So then it's, they start being internalized or so. So this is, that's why cholesterol is there. It's just keeping these balloons partially filled up so they can gather either more cholesterol or triglycerides. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of put to rest this idea that, if you want healthy hormone production and, and healthy levels of cholesterol in your cells, then you want to have a high serum blood cholesterol. You want to have great cholesterol production within the gonads or the adrenal cortex. 
Thank God the brain is a cholesterol synthesizing machine, so it doesn't need any cholesterol from your blood. So that's how those organs survive and make hormones. They synthesize de novo cholesterol. And, you know, all they need there is some acetate or citrate, which is the initial building block for cholesterol synthesis. So they have no shortage of substrate from which to build cholesterol. In my summary, I left out one important uh, piece of inf information that you spoke to, and that is the importance of that main protein that wraps around these lipoproteins. So the chylomicrons, the VLDL, the IDL, and the LDLs have this ApoB. As I understand it, the they're, they're slightly different ApoBs, but for now we'll just call it ApoB. And the HDL has ApoA. A1. There's several types a of APO, capital A, a1 is the structural protein, but a little, little distinction, the beta lipoprotein family, the ApoB particles have one molecule of ApoB. HDLs contain from one to four molecules of their structural protein, ApoProtein A1. And that's why you can't measure ApoA1 and get an accurate HDL particle count. But if you measure ApoB, you get a very accurate ApoB lipoprotein particle concentration, one peptide per particle. HDLs, one, two, three, or four peptides per particle. You mentioned before threshold and physiological norm. So talk to us about that. When this system is working well, these uh, LDL um, particles or any of these ApoB-containing lipoproteins are sort of finding their way back to the liver and not ending up in the artery wall and depositing cholesterol and building up as plaque. Is that, is that safe to say that when this system's working well and we're at a physiological norm level, that's not happening? Perfect. And I think early in my diatribe here, I mentioned physiological concentrations. If you, we can keep these particles at the proper concentrations, they will perform exactly as I said they should, because all of those machinations will happen. But if the ApoB particle concentration, and remember one ApoB per particle, if ApoB measurement in the blood exceeds a certain le level, there are more ApoB particles circulating than the liver is clearing. And as that number goes up and up and up, the particles are obviously not being cleared by the liver. So where do they go? We have miles and miles of endothelium on our arteries so they just pick the nearest artery and they crash it. And the ApoB particle carrying cholesterol, step one of atherogenesis is it passes through the endothelial lining, which is a one cell lining of every artery in our body. And now it's in the artery wall. And we can talk more about that later, but that's step one. But what forces the ApoB particle to go my joke is it's going to go where it's going to do illegal dumping. It's not going to the liver, which can get rid of the darn cholesterol safely. It's putting cholesterol in your artery wall. And the primary driving force is particle number, particle concentration. And this is why ApoB is by far the best metric that every human should get tested for when they do their cardiovascular risk assessments. Most of them get other lipid concentrations and we'll relate the two later on. But once your ApoB goes above a certain concentration, the chances are good it's going to crash your artery wall. There are other things that influence whether it goes into the artery wall or not, but it's particle number. 
Very few people who have physiologic numbers of ApoB particles ever get atherogenesis or atherosclerosis. And here's the bad news. You know, our little kids don't get much atherosclerosis that we know of. Some of them do nowadays because they're eating this junk earlier and early and getting fat and uh, insulin resistant at very young ages, which didn't happen earlier. But uh, these ApoB particles, if you took a five-year-old and measure his ApoB, it's 40 or 50 milligrams per deciliter. That's a physiologic. When we come out as infants, uh, it's 20 to 30 milligrams per deciliter. And by the way, when we come out of mom as little infants, our brains are fully developed and there is virtually little circulating cholesterol in that fetus while he was in the uterus and very little in the infant once he's born. Yet the brain keeps developing normally for several years, even though there's very little cholesterol in the ApoB particles in the brain. So there's another thing that tells you stop relating blood cholesterol to brain, whatever's going on in the brain or so. So now, as you know, as we get older and older, you get into adolescence, puberty changes the concentrations of these things worse in men before women. So, uh, you know, sooner or later, ApoB may cross the threshold from which it has the ability to start crashing your artery wall. Now, listen, if you took a 14-year-old and he's got ApoB particles, unless this kid has astronomical levels as certain genetic lipid disorders, it would take three decades for enough ApoB particles to pollute his artery wall with cholesterol before he might show up with a positive coronary calcium test or even four decades before, like your dad, he suddenly gets chest pain and oh, while driving or doing something else. And this goes back to how we started off this thing. God, if we would just measure ApoB early in life, we would know, whoa, Let's start a better lifestyle in this kid, some exercise, not let's start three drugs to get his ApoB under control. We would halt atherogenesis before it's ever even beginning. But most people don't do that. Most doctors don't check that in young people. So even though atherogenesis may be occurring, and God knows through all the wars we've been through and our young heroes get shot, killed, and autopsied, so many of these 18 to 22 year olds have significant non-clinical, meaning symptomless atherosclerosis in their arteries because ApoB has been crashing their artery walls for 18 to 22 years already. So uh, we got to recognize it early. But this is why one of the reasons why ApoB is considered causal, because it's a marker of the particle that is carrying cholesterol, which is actually the injurious molecule to the artery wall. But no cholesterol could ever get into your artery wall unless an ApoB particle dumps it in there. So this is why ApoB has gone to center stage with the best marker. And if we exceed whatever threshold you think is necessary, we'll start treating it and return it to those physiologic levels. And that's <laughs> therapeutic lipidology in a nutshell. So 40 to 50 milligrams per deciliter is the kind of concentration of of ApoB in young uh, humans. Yeah, and what, if they could what maintain is the threshold? that, they will virtually never have atherosclerosis. What do you think is the the kind of the tipping point threshold where you go from from a level of these ApoB containing lipoproteins that's not causing atherogenesis to where it's beginning to? A lot depends on what other risk factors is present in you. Now, if you had nothing else wrong with you but ApoB, 
it would take longer than if you were a smoker who was a diabetic, who was a hypertensive, the short, it'd be a much shorter time before you've got atherosclerotic plaque in your arteries. So here's the levels. In general, if there are not a bunch of other risk factors of concern, we like people to be in what's called the bottom 20th percentile population cut point. In other words, if we measured ApoB on every human on the planet, let me see the people who have an ApoB concentration that is in the lower 20th percentile, and that would be 80 milligrams per deciliter. So in general, unless you do have a multitude of other factors, if you're running around with an ApoB of 80, that's probably fine. Uh, it's going to be a long time. And sooner or later, you're going to eat wrong or start smoking or <laughs> secondary smoke. So you don't want to, you want to be lower than the 20th percentile, but that's on average. You never want to be much higher than that. You certainly don't want to be above the 80th percentile because that's, and that's like 115, 120 milligrams per deciliter. Those are the people who most commonly get atherosclerotic heart disease. Are there people with super high ApoB who don't seem to get atherosclerosis? Uh, it's the biggest risk factor. It's causal. But yeah, there's always going to be an exception to the rule with human bodies. And what is preventing in my very small minority of people, horrendous ApoB causing, not causing atherosclerosis? Nobody knows. Uh, there must be other protective things going on. But nobody who's measuring their ApoB at age 30, 40, and says, oh, my ApoB is 140. I ain't worried about it because I'm good. I'm healthy. I can do 50 push-ups a day. I actually did a coronary calcium and there's no calcium. Well, that's good. You probably got another five, 10 years where nothing's going to happen to you. But if you're 30 and 40 and you want to see 90, I wouldn't go 50 years with an ApoB that's sky high because there would be zero data supporting that that is safe. I have a few more questions on on some of that stuff, but I want to I want to dive in a little bit more into the mechanism, if that's all right with you. And and the the term transcytosis comes up a lot in the literature, which essentially, uh, to my knowledge, just means the movement of these ApoB containing lipoproteins from the the plasma, like in the lumen of the artery, in that inside of the tube, um, through the endothelial sort of cells or between them into the intima which is the innermost kind of uh, part of the artery wall is is that sort of flux transcytosis movement of these apob containing lipoproteins into the artery wall is is that normal and happens all the time and they go in and they sort of find their way out and nothing happens um and it becomes pathological um when they don't find their way out and become retained for some reason. Yeah. So now you're going to look at, all right, ApoB has somehow gotten through that endothelium, and I'll tell you the ways it does that. But then it's in the, you called it the intima. That's basically the outer connective tissue area of the arterial wall. And there are reasons why that ApoB particle, once it passes through the endothelium, it's going to get stuck there. That ApoB uh, protein on the surface of the particle has great affinity for connective tissue molecules, um, uh, glycoproteins that bind the ApoB particle, and it's like a flies on flypaper. It's stuck. Now, sometimes it's just stuck there. Nothing ever happens. Who cares? Very few of them break free and can leach out again back into the plasma. 
perhaps a minuscule number. But once they crash there, they're stuck in the arterial wall. So as they're bound to these proteoglycans in the arterial wall, they can just be bound there forever. And like a mummy, it'll, they'll just ultimately shrink up, add to the connective tissue, and they're of no consequence. Because for atherosclerosis to develop, uh, ApoB cholesterol-containing particle has to be ingested by a macrophage that is in the arterial wall connective tissue. How did the macrophage get in there? A monocyte left the bloodstream. It passes through the endothelium. There are receptors that pull it in, and it transforms into a macrophage in the arterial wall. A macrophage is basically a white blood cell capable of scavenging, eating things. So what makes some of the retained ApoB particles a substrate for receptors on macrophages that they will internalize them? And now if that macrophage keeps internalizing humongous numbers of ApoB cholesterol-carrying particles, before you know it, the macrophage becomes super cholesterol engorged. They're called foam cells because they look foamy if you look at them in a microscope. And that if you get a macrophage that turns into a foam cell and you get a few billion of those macrophages, that is plaque. Initially a fatty streak in the artery wall. After that, more localized collections of cholesterol. And over time, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Most of the disease early on is in the wall of the artery. It's not obstructing the arterial wall lumen at all. Sooner or later, bad things can happen. But the million-dollar question is, after the ApoB particle goes through the endothelium, why do some get ingested by macrophages and others do not? A word first about what you said, the transendothelial passage, transcytosis of the ApoB particle. That can occur with perfectly healthy endothelial cells. You do not need an inflamed, disturbed endothelium for that particle to pass right through it. Cavioli, and there's other receptors that just pull those particles through. There is a little gap between endothelial cells, a perivascular sort of channel. They can sneak through that. These are very, very small particles, you know, 20 micrograms, 21 micrograms, uh, millimeters, excuse me, they get in. So, but they certainly can get in with greater frequency if the endothelium happens to be disturbed or inflamed. And most of the inflammation of the endothelium and atherosclerotic disease is because those macrophages I told you about, they start ingesting the particles. They start secreting all these pro-inflammatory cytokines, kinokines, which causes the endothelial dysfunction. So it's ApoB is not bad enough. It's delivering the criminal cholesterol, but then that sets off the inflammation that further destroys your endothelial cells. But there are many human conditions where the endothelial cells might be inflamed before the ApoB particle even shows up. Um, many of our collagen diseases, uh, you, you know, the list of inf subtle inflammatory diseases are huge. Even insulin resistance, diabetes, yeah, you know, think of the people who have subtle elevations of C-reactive protein. Likely many of them have this, now they have an endothelium that has less protection in keeping an ApoB particle out. So, but it doesn't have to be there. And that's why the young people develop atherosclerosis early because they're not having all these inflammatory conditions. Particles just go right in. So who cares? If a particle gets in, you're in trouble. Whether the endothelium let it in physiologically or you got a destroyed endothelium due to other factors.
Is that also where risk factors like high blood pressure and smoking play a role? Do they feed into this the the sort of quality of the endothelium? Even I couldn't give you a list of the pro-inflammatory conditions that probably cause endothelial dysfunction. Hypertension and its effect on nitric oxide would be one. Smoking for whatever chemicals are in, passing through your endothelium there, of course. Autoimmune diseases where the immune system is revved up and creating so many undesirable things. I mentioned insulin resistance, diabetes is a pro-inflammatory state. So the list is long. So uh, try not, if you have high ApoB, try not to have any of them. The, the take-home message there, though, before we move on to the next point, is that you're always going to have some movement and flux of these ApoB-containing lipoproteins from circulation into the uh, into the intima. You can exacerbate that and make it worse if you have other kind of risk factors or um, genetic sort of conditions, but it's going to happen because I, th I do think there is this idea out there that, well, if my endothelium is healthy, it doesn't actually matter if I have elevated levels of yeah. LDL cholesterol. Unfortunately, that is circulating all over the internet. They go out and they do some inflammatory marker in the bloodstream and it's normal and they declare themselves immortal. It's silly. High ApoB, listen, FH, which is a genetic condition of too many ApoB particles that certainly causes premature atherosclerosis is not typically associated with inflammatory markers. You know? so, but those, and those are big ApoB particles. They have no trouble just going, passing through the endothelium because their concentration is so high. So uh, yes, it's always a complicated story, but never ever say yeah, ApoB high, that's bad. But if I don't have inflammation, I can't get atherosclerosis. Sooner or later, you will have inflammation because once the particle goes in and gets ingested by the macrophage, boom, now you have a pro-inflammatory state and then the endothelium will become dysfunctional at a certain point as uh, cholesterol gets deposited. The next step would be the particle going into the macrophage, but go ahead, finish. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in the next step. And I guess one of the kind of first questions I have here is, do we have any sense for the percentage of ApoB-containing lipoproteins that do undergo transcytosis, cross into the intima, and uh, move back out versus become retained? Well, I don't... I I haven't ever seen anything that the number that leaked out. People mention it, but I've never seen quantitative studies showing that or so. I think most of them at a threshold, if they do uh, somehow pass the endothelium, they either get caught there and they just rot away and contribute nothing to the buildup of cholesterol and macrophages. But there are some that get transformed or develop the ability that the macrophage is going to grab them and ingest them, which would create the sterile laden foam cell. So that's the uh, step one of if all that happened is ApoB particles crashed your artery wall and bound to proteoglycans, I don't think we'd have atherosclerosis. How many do that? I don't have a number for you. It's certainly, it's considerable, but so we have such high concentrations of ApoB there's plenty that are going to make it to the macrophage and not just simply be, be an isolated, stranded LDL particle in your artery wall. So if, if we kind of um, think about two 
ApoB containing lipoproteins here. I'm, I'm simplifying this. And one of those let's call Peter and the other one let's call Mary. And one of these ApoB containing lipoproteins enters the intima. It binds to proteoglycans, but it, it goes no further than that. And then, and that's, that's what happens to this molecule called Peter. This molecule called Mary goes in, binds to the proteoglycans, and then it becomes modified and it gets taken up by macrophages. What is it that, what, yeah, what is it that, that differentiates why that happens to one versus the other? So what makes a retained ApoB particle become a substrate for the macrophage endocytosis? Something has to happen to differentiate those two particles that came in, why the one. And so it does have to be transformed. Now, for the longest time, people just said, oh, the particle goes in, it's subject to reactive oxygen species, the surface phospholipids get oxidized, and oxidized lipids are a major uh, thing that sets off scavenger receptors in the macrophages and the particles get intensified. And there's a lot of animal data that shows that. And there's very little human data that shows that. And this is a problem. So Peter Libby is the expert on this. And Peter Libby has been writing in the last few years, if oxidation occurs, and that's an if, because there's not a lot of human data supporting it, uh, what, what else would make an LDL particle very attractive to the receptors that internalize it on a macrophage? Something has to happen to that particle. Or maybe this next step that I'm going to tell you about happens and then oxidation happens. So there's a precursory step to oxidation if that occurs. And by the way, the reason Peter questions that uh, is that there have been several trials of anti various antioxidants given to people, and none of them have reduced atherosclerotic heart disease. And some of them prescription-grade uh, probuchal antioxidants that just didn't do anything. So who knows? But here's the now believed to be the crucial first step. So what's on the surface of a retained ApoB LDL particle? Phospholipids. Now, phospholipids certainly can be oxidized. But what happens is there's in some LDL particles, there's a rearrangement of the types of phospholipids that are on the particle. And there are certain phospholipids that are targets for the receptors on the macrophages. Sphingomyelin, ceramid, uh, and how does the regular phospholipid content, which is mostly phosphatidylcholine, on these LDL particles suddenly change into these other phospholipids that become attractive? There are enzymes called mutases, and these mutases have the ability to change fatty acids on the phospholipids, changing one fatty, one phospholipid into another. And if you create the wrong type of phospholipids, what now happens is the LDL particles, and there's many of them stuck there, they bind together. That's called aggregation. And sooner or later, you get a bunch of LDL particles because their phospholipids have this new attraction for each other you get humongous collections of aggregated LDL, and it's the aggregated LDL that gets internalized by the macrophage. So instead of it internalizing one LDL particle, it's internalizing hundreds of aggregated LDL particles. Now, once the particles are aggravated, does some degree of oxidation occur there? 
maybe, probably, who knows. But aggregation seems to be the crucial step that sets off the cascade. And there are papers written on this. I can send you nice slides, which maybe we will put into your slide notes. Remind me as we get to that stage of promulgating this message tonight. So it's aggregation of LDL particles. And if you have an aggregated clump of LDL particles, there are a hell of a lot more cholesterol molecules in that than there would be in one LDL particle. So bingo, ap aggregation. Whether How much role oxidation plays after that? I, I Like always, we need more studies and human studies, especially not what happens in a mouse. So, because uh, that may or may not have applicability to humans. So that's the big step, this whole new concept of aggregation of particles. And uh, then you have the macrophage. Once that all those sterols are in the macrophage, they start creating interleukins and all the other things that then leach out into the plasma, go to the liver, the liver produces C-reactive protein, or the chemokine, cytokine, some of them that are produced, as they try to leave the artery wall, they damage the endothelial cells there, creating endothelial dysfunction. And if you we don't arrest this process by forbidding ApoB particles to enter, and the only way you do that is reduce their concentration over time, and time is critical here, years and decades, they're your father. You know, that's what happens. The critical point being here that in order to stop that process of retention and then modification being being taken up by the macrophage, turning into a foam cell, building up as fatty plaque, we have to get the concentration of these ApoB-containing lipoproteins, which are mainly your VLDLs, IDLs, and LDLs that are, that are in circulation for longer. Well, let me than... stop you there. It's mostly LDLs. Uh, the VLDLs have a plasma residence time of a few hours, chylomicrons less than an hour, IDLs an hour, LDLs several days. So when you measure ApoB, 90 to 95% of your ApoB particles are LDLs. So yes, a VLDL or a chylomicron remnant can make its way into the artery wall, but it's like, you know, 95% of the army is LDL particles that are doing the invasion. So never, and that's good because it's very easy to modify LDL particle concentration with various therapeutic maneuvers. And that's interesting about the, the role of, of phospholipids here. And it, it gets me thinking because um, not only do we hear people say, well, if the endothelium is intact, then you don't have to worry about high LDL cholesterol. But the other thing that I often hear, and now I've got all sorts of questions about this, is people saying, well, if, if your oxidized LDL is low and, and people, you know, say things like don't if you if you don't consume certain oils, you can you don't have to worry about oxidation of LDL. Um, but By the way, there are no oxidized that, LDLs floating in your bloodstream of any consequence. Uh, they would immediately be removed by uh, all of our immune systems that get rid of oxidized particles in the blood. Most of the particle oxidation occurs in the wall of the artery and that is not measurable. That's that's the really interesting point that I was thinking about because people talk about measuring their oxidized LDL. Or Listen, I worked with a biomarker lab for seven years, and all that did was make the laboratorians rich. It's a totally useless metric to measure 
ox, minimally oxidized LDL in the bloodstream because there are just none of them there. And if you, none of the studies that ever suggested oxidized LDL as a good biomarker were ever adjusted against ApoB because it would have no meaning if you adjusted for ApoB. Okay, so ox the oxidation is occurring in the intima for the most part, it's not occurring in the circulation. Yeah. So now we will, sooner or later, we'll talk about LP little a particle. There is a measurable oxidation biomarker. It's called oxidized phospholipids on ApoB. That is in the plasma and that is measurable, but that's not what's measured when people order oxidized LDLs. There's a very unique new biomarker that pretty much pertains only to LP little a particles. So I'm sure we'll get to that ultimately, but but the standard oxidized LDL tests that laboratories offer are a joke. They're a way to lab make money. I doubt insurance companies cover them. They never used to when I worked there. So uh, don't waste your money. Is the modification of the, the um, LDL particle, is that something that is in our control? The oxidation that occurs in the intima or the, the production of these wrong, I think you said the wrong type of phospholipids, are these things that are in control through diet, through the consumption of antioxidants and vitamin E and polyphenols, things of that nature? Listen, that would be speculative. It's a good hypothesis. Nobody's ever going to do the type of trial to ever nail down those hypotheses. So, look, I think we're always going to be uh, supporters of healthy lifestyles, uh, which help our tissues in so many ways, including reducing atherosclerotic disease. But how exactly they do it? Are they messing with all that stuff going on in the artery wall? Maybe. It's plausible, but I don't know how you ever prove that. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it's the retention of the particle and the modification that really revs up the inflammation. Another yes, idea I've modification heard out there. is aggregation, then probably oxidation, then you're in the macrophage. Mm -hmm. Another idea that I've seen floating around is people suggesting that the LDL particle is actually being sent into the intima as part of the inflammatory response to resolve it, that it's, it's part of the, that immune response, which is the opposite of, of the order of events that you're describing. Have you heard that? Yeah, because first of all, tell me what an LDL is carrying. An LDL is a collection of mostly cholesterol, surface phospholipids, a single molecule of apolipoprotein B. There might be some minuscule concentrations of other lipids in there. Even LDL might, mostly it's VLDLs carrying it. There might be a little vitamin E on an LDL. But there's nothing an LDL carries that is protective with respect to that avenue of uh, resolving inflammation. That is absurd because the evidence that shows high ApoB is causal for atherosclerotic disease is so immense, we'd have to have a one-week podcast, if I could even remember all the trials that have proved it, of many nature trials. So it's silly for anybody to even argue that nowadays. Yes, as we mentioned, there are probably the oddball person here and there where somehow they made it to the centurion mark and their ApoB was high. They'd be few and far between. And I don't know what in their body protected them against ApoB. Uh, you know, and neither does anybody else. So if we want to keep inflammation down, 
in the intima. We we essentially want to reduce the amount of cholesterol that's being deposited there. Yeah. Stop the ApoB particle from going into the artery wall, and that will arrest a significant amount of arterial wall inflammation. You know, it depends at what stage of your game you start doing it. If we take somebody like your father who probably had a lot of significant car, I don't know that we ever put out the fire in his artery. We can certainly reduce it. But earlier in life, yeah, I think if you stop ApoB from going in there, there will be none of this maladaptive inflammation that occurs in the artery wall. It, it's just so sensical, you know. What is it that differentiates veins from from arteries? Why do we tend to see more of this fatty plaque build up in in the ar- arterial system? Yeah, well, first of all, veins don't have the same construction in the arterial wall, but it's such a low pressure system. So blood pressure in the arteries, this is where blood pressure starts factoring in. And also arteries are tortuous. They're kinked, they bend and Atherosclerosis doesn't develop in every square inch of an artery throughout your body. There are certain key locations, and it's almost always where blood is coming hard and it has to make a right-hand turn or a left-hand turn, and that would, you can imagine, facilitate a like ApoB particles are coming out of a shotgun. So, you know, in King City, and veins just don't have that. Veins are just, there's almost no pressure in them, and it's just, just vaguely blood flow going around. There's nothing... Because the part, the, obviously the particles are in the veins too. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that's the difference. Veins are subject to thrombotic complications, not atherosclerosis. By the way, interestingly, we used to take saphenous veins out and do coronary bypasses with them. And now you're putting a vein in an arterial milieu. And those veins can develop atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. So, but if you keep a vein where it's supposed to be, there's no atherosclerosis. Right. Okay, so that's that's the mechanism side of things. Yeah, um, this is there anything else the you want to add there? Rheology, blood flow, and blood kinetics, which are certainly part of. You no, know, it's the ApoB doing it, but why does ApoB selectively deposit at certain areas in various arteries? Mm-hmm. You mentioned before that there is a plethora of evidence that establishes ApoB as causal in the development of atherosclerosis. And I appreciate we're not going to step through all of that body of literature. Please, because I'll develop a headache and have to go. (laughs) But if, if, if someone said, look, Tom, summarize, you know, that, that evidence that we have, where would you start? Well, you'd start with just generalizations. You would say, here is the evidence, epidemiologic studies, not the highest proof, but if, they're 95% suggestive of a plausible reason that they're probably true. Now you have randomized controlled clinical trials where you actually control for things and you change ApoB or something during a trial, or you do a randomized uh, study following a cohort for a long time. So, and then you get into the genetic studies. If you look at genes that are associated with atherosclerosis and then you can do this Mendelian randomization where you can play with, aha, uh-huh, high LDL cholesterol, low LDL cholesterol, high ApoB or not. Let's look at all the genes that we know cause atherosclerosis or do not. And let's see, does whatever metric you're looking at matter in these genetic? Because you know the Mendelian studies are basically a lifelong randomized controlled trial. Nobody can putz around with anything. You got your genes and... If you got the genes that make ApoB or uh, prevent ApoB from being cleared, 
you're going to go through life with high ApoB. If you don't have those genes, you're not going to have high ApoB. And we can just look at these gigantic studies and relate. And this is how some things ultimately get is called causal. So you have all of these studies. And we're going to link it in your podcast notes. About three years ago, the European Atherosclerosis Society put out two gigantic papers on the causality of ApoB, where they do chart every damn study in the history of the world that does support it. So for the geeks who want to read every darn paper, now listen, I grew up through this era. I lived through all of these papers, but my 77-year-old brain doesn't remember every chapter and verse of every damn study that's ever been done, but they're there. Uh, there's not a guideline that exists now that doesn't cause ApoB causal. So the deniers think those are all experts bought off by pharma or something else, laboratories, which is ridiculous, but that's their excuse. Not to argue the facts, make up uh, stupid stuff as to why it can't be true. Yeah, the I believe you're you're referring to the Ferentz, Brian Ferentz and the Boren uh, papers. So those I've learned a lot from those. So we'll definitely put those into the, the show notes. Uh, linking back to our earlier discussion. So I'm interested here in kind of um, how someone can can determine whether their ApoB level or LDL cholesterol level is, if let's say it's elevated, is elevated because of genetics or is it because of their lifestyle? And if we just start, you, you mentioned there, there's some, some genetic variants that can um, result in, uh, I guess, an, an elevated level of ApoB or even a reduced level of ApoB and offer protection. Um, and going back to where we were talking about the, the lipid transport system earlier, most of these genes either uh, affecting the ability for LDL to come back into the liver or affecting the amount of um, cholesterol that's absorbed in the intestine? Well, listen, uh I think where we're all going in this science right now is this so-called polygenic risk score that people are developing. You, you get an extensive genome analysis, and you know we certainly don't know what every gene does, but there's enough of them that we know, hey, these genes are associated with atherosclerosis or atheroprotection or just null. And if you can look at all those SNPs in a given person, you could just say, geez, you have a hell of a lot more SNPs associated with atherosclerotic risk than the guy we tested down the street who we didn't find any. So if you have an abnormal polygenic risk score, then that's we all ought to get that test early in life. And if you're abnormal, you have some of the uh, genetic risk things, that's when you start then monitoring closely the causal things that nowadays we can treat. And that would start with ApoB. We'd certainly, again, tell you to stop smoking, control your hypertension. But uh, that's the way we're going here. So, look, I'm coming more and more of the belief that this every lipid disorder has an underlying genetic abnormality. Now, yes, you know the genes always act with the environment in which they're placed. So, depending on which genes you have, maybe you, if you lead a perfect lifestyle you might be home free at the end of the day whenever death does come. But the odds are we never, how many of us do the perfect lifestyle? So if you got a couple of genes that don't like what environment you're exposing them to, bingo, you develop it. 
So one of the treatments would probably be a healthy lifestyle. But I think behind every lipid disorder, if you didn't have the genes that can cause whatever you're measuring, you're home free. You, maybe you can eat whatever the hell you want if you had zero of those genes and uh, be a couch potato all your life. Maybe there'd be other morbidities related to your bones and muscles and arthritis, but you probably wouldn't get atherosclerosis. So uh, genes, as we're now learning, are more and more. God, this is how pharma exists nowadays, because every time they identify a new gene that seems to be seriously involved, what protein does that gene make? You go in there and you inhibit it, and bingo, you got another drug that uh, is a piece of the puzzle of wiping out atherosclerosis. And old men like me, we uh, were taught nothing about genetics for the most part, because we didn't know anything. And now, if you want to be successful in this field, that's why I'm certainly a lot closer to retirement. I'm glad because I can't keep up with all this genetic information. So genes are everything. One day, these polygenic risk scores will be certified as being what we think they're going to be right now. But the data is pretty good now. That reminds me of a, of a question I, I have. Often I, I hear people suggest that, well, if you... If you lower ApoB, you might reduce your risk of atherosclerosis, but you won't increase your lifespan. You'll just end up dying of something else. And I'm wondering if we look at, say, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but if we look at, say, a gene mutation like a, a PCSK9 uh, loss of function, you know, so these people have really low levels of, of ApoB and reduced risk of atherosclerosis, and they have that lifelong, so they're born with that. Do do these people show greater longevity? Do they live longer? There are a couple of studies that have related ApoB to longevity, and we'll certainly list the papers that show that. But in general, I don't know that we have enough data on that now to say it with certainty or so. But listen, longevity is, there's two components to it. Yeah, we all want to live as long as we can. And the next thing is we want to live disease-free. That's health span. You want to, if I'm going to make it to 90, I want to be able to think, have a heart that beats, be able to walk without a walker. So we have to work hard at preventing the degenerative diseases. I think we can take out atherosclerosis. So maybe I don't live too much longer. I think you'd live a little bit longer, but uh, would, is that a guarantee you're going to make it to 100? No, because these other diseases can pop up and then take you out. Right now, if longevity means taking out atherosclerosis, which I believe we can do, hey, taking out cancer, taking out degenerative brain disease, and then uh, uh, taking out a bunch of metabolic diseases that can do us in too, and then buckle your seatbelt after that, you know. Uh, certainly falls is what kills the old folks like me. So early in life, we all ought to be training our muscles and skeletal system a lot better. So, But atherosclerosis, even if it doesn't, you're not going to live a day longer. You're not living in congestive heart failure. You're not living with, I can't take three steps because I get chest pain. You're living without TIAs. Uh, the risk of stroke is near abolished. Uh, claudication, I don't ever have to worry. My renal failure is going to be due to atherosclerosis. I won't be developing an aneurysm in my aorta someplace. So that's kind of cool. Even if I don't live longer, None of those are morbidities you want to ever have to deal with. They'll bankrupt you. They'll certainly cause life to be a bit miserable. You'll be in and out of the hospital. So 
yeah, you know, who cares whether you live a day or longer? I suspect we will, but and but I know for however long you're going to be here, the morbidity of heart disease will be gone. Yes, quality of life. Um, I, I have a question around the mechanism by which ApoB is elevated and whether, and I, and I think I already know the answer to this question based on, on you describing atherogenesis and the cascade of events that occurs. But there is this idea out there that the mechanism by which ApoB is elevated somehow affects the quality or function of those particles and the ability uh, or lack of ability of those to uh, end up becoming retained and modified and uh, being taken up by a macrophage. Is there, is there uh, a chance, for example, that um, ApoB containing lipoproteins are acting differently in people who have, say, familial hypercholesterolemia uh, versus someone who has those same elevated levels of LDL cholesterol but through diet? Uh, yeah, there are, there are definite studies that show if you come in with ApoB levels or LDL cholesterols that put you within the definition of familial hypercholesterolemia, and you would also, by doing a family history and other ways, make that diagnosis with certainty. But then you might start doing a genetic analysis and say, hey, your LDL cholesterol is 290. Let me find out what's wrong with your genetic system that why is your body uh, not getting rid of these uh, LDL particles? So if you do a genetic analysis and you find especially a monogenic disturbance as to, aha, no wonder you got too many ApoB particles, versus the next person who has the same very high LDL cholesterol, but your genomic screen comes up negative, the person that you've actually found the genetic mutant does have higher risk than the person who doesn't, even though the phenotype LDL cholesterol is exactly the same. But here's the thing, they're both at immense risk. It's not like, oh, because you didn't find a genetic defect in me, I'm home free. That's nonsense. You know, we're, we just There's so many genetic defects that are yet to be discovered in everything. The monogenic defects are the worst. So now there's other thing too, if you have a bad gene defect, you know, genes all interact with one. Are there other genetic things going on that perhaps worsen your risk too? But there's nobody who has the ApoB level or LDLC in the FH definition range that is ever should be told ignore just because we can't find a gene that causes it. So yes, I'm sorry, sir. We did find a genetic defect in you. You're you're at higher risk. But the good news is you're going to take both of those patients and using modern therapeutic modalities, restore their ApoB level to physiologic levels, and then the risk disappears, <laughs> no matter what the hell the genetic cause is. And that's the good thing. You really don't you really have to know the genes that are causing it. You just have to get, get the ApoB under control. Sometimes knowing the genetic defect plays well with the third-party payer because the drug you're probably going to need is super expensive. And if you can show the third-party pair, oh, look at this gene I got, they'll cover it. Whereas if you can't show a genetic abnormality, they might hold that against you. More and more just using the LDL cholesterol level and associate them with other risk factors. But yeah, so it does. But it's not like, oh, thank God, we didn't find a genetic reason for your sky-high LDLC. You're protected. <laughs> Nonsense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that that clears up, I guess, your view on, on some of the, these folks who I guess are 
fall under the umbrella of this lean mass hyperresponder. Yeah. Um, First of all, it's an absurd term. Most of these people are not lean <laughs> that have this guy. That's why they went on the ketogenic diet to begin with to lose weight. So, uh, but it, it's just absurd. That's a very high ApoB state. And interesting, if you came to me tomorrow and you showed me your lipid profile and your LDL cholesterol is 280, I don't say you have FH. The first thing I must do is rule out secondary causes of hyperbeta lipoproteinemia, severe hypothyroidism, renal disease, certain liver diseases do it. And of course, certain diets, especially the ketogenic diet, do it. So if you tell me, oh, yeah, I'm in ketosis all day long, I'm not going to say, oh, my God, it's caused FH in you. It hasn't. It, it raised your ApoB through uh, mostly the high fat shuts down your LDL receptors. You stop clearing LDL particles or it induces cholesterol synthesis. So I would modify your diet and then your LDL cholesterol would fall far below an FH phenotype. So you always must rule out the secondary causes of which now that the ketogenic diet has become more and more popular, we actually, as lipidologists, see more of that than we do hypothyroidism or renal or liver disease. You say high fat. Um, my understanding, and and you may have just been saying it for uh, for simplicity, but my understanding is that saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats have a different effect on the LDL receptor. Yeah, I speak fast. That's an extra word to put in your saturated. So, okay. You know, it, so it, it's so it's the culprit. It's saturated fat. Right. So so people need uh, not necessarily need to adopt a low fat diet, but need to think about, I guess, the type Correct. of fat Correct. that they're, they're consuming. So that's fat. Or they could say, I love this diet. I feel great on it. I've lost weight. Uh, please control my ApoB with however you do it. And I could therefore say, stay on your damn diet and let's try this combination of therapies. It's been my experience that they're tough to treat with drugs because they're, you know, you got drugs removing and you got other fa factors going on that are increasing it. So yeah, the right hand is fighting the left hand. So, but it could be worth a try. Why is it that saturated fats downregulate the LDL receptor sensitivity and polyunsaturated fats upregulate it? It has to do with uh, what regulates all cellular actions are nuclear transcription factors that sense disturbances in the cellular milieu. And there are several uh, lipid sensing nuclear transcription factors, the sterile regulatory element binding protein, the liver X receptor are at the top of the list. One senses too much cholesterol, one senses too little cholesterol. And depending therefore whether a cell needs cholesterol or doesn't, it goes into the genetic, the DNA, and say, hey, make this protein that gets rid of cholesterol if you have excess, or if you need cholesterol, make this protein that will help the cell gain cholesterol. So it's nuclear transcription factors, especially the two I mentioned, sterile regulatory allen binding is SREB and uh, liver X receptors, LXR. It's in every tissue. It got discovered in the liver, so it got that name. And they regulate the genes that modulate cholesterol homeostasis and saturated fat is sensed by the sterile regular one of the sterile regulatory element binding proteins that goes in and it shuts down your LDL receptors because it's telling the liver doesn't need more lipids so don't produce LDL receptors and pull more lipids into the damn liver it'll worsen the fatty liver we're going to get 
So it's all controlled by genes and these sensors that control genes. Let's finish on on two other components of diet and how they interact with this system. So fiber and and dietary cholesterol. I'm interested in getting your your thoughts on. So firstly, um, what's the mechanism by which fiber can help uh, lower cholesterol levels in the body? I think it's two reasons. One, it can to some degree bind cholesterol in the gut and get it out of your intestine before it's less readily available for absorption or incorporation into biliary micelles. And the other thing, I think fiber probably has some regulatory effect on some of the microbes that are in our gut. And one part I want to get into, maybe when we start discussing absorption in a little more detail, how if gut bacteria change cholesterol to cholesterol, Sounds the same, cholesterol, cholesterol, one's a sterile, one's a stanol. Once you make a stanol, it cannot be absorbed by the Neiman-PIC-C1-like protein. So if our bacteria do us a favor and any free cholesterol that's in our gut lumen gets converted to cholesterol or it's isomer called coprostanol, it's going to go out your rear end. And I wouldn't doubt that fiber has some influence on what microbes exist and where, and that's just been a theory of mine, maybe, and I don't read much on the intestinal microbe and that sort of stuff. It's, I got too much to read on inside the butt. But, I, you know, to me, it's a plausible way, perhaps. Uh, so, so you'll, less cholesterol available for absorption with that. And probiotics is just more evidence that the bacteria you put down there can change cholesterol to cholesterol and the lactobacilli are the ones that do this. And if they start changing cholesterol to cholesterol, it's going out your rear end. It's not going to be absorbed. And they are one of the supplement ways of trying to reduce cholesterol, uh, at least absorption. Now, now look, fiber, the lactobacilli, they might impact your ApoB or LDL, but trivially. It's nothing that's going to take you from FH to goal. Yeah. You know, but hey, if you want to make that as part of a regimen, okay. I don't see harm to those two therapies. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about why it's hard to answer with a yes or no if someone says, is dietary cholesterol going to significantly affect my blood cholesterol levels or can I, can I eat eggs? So let, let's go into the kind of um, the way that dietary cholesterol is absorbed and some of the genetic differences that people um, Listen, may have. And uh, when you get into science and lipidology especially, I've written two book chapters that are like 50 pages that deal solely with the absorption of sterols in the gut. And because there are like 10 stages of it, we've hinted at it. You, uh, you, hey, you swallow cholesterol. You vaguely mention that a ton of cholesterol is coming out of your bile duct because the liver put it there. That's most of the cholesterol in your gut. But then you have to put it in a biliary micelle. And then that micelle has to be, the sterile has to be absorbed. We didn't talk about, you vaguely mentioned it, Addy. Boy, if the Neiman pick pulls in too much cholesterol, we got a cholesterol efflux transporter, ABCG5, G8. So they work, that works in harmony with the NCP1L1. And then if the cholesterol, before it goes in a colomicron, it has to be esterified by an enzyme called ACAT. And, you know, so that's another layer of complexity. 
And then it, does it go in the chylomicron? Does it go on the surface or in the core? And then the last way the intestine gets rid of cholesterol, it can efflux it out to HDL particles. So uh, HDLs are a way to get cholesterol absorbed. Now, each of those steps, as you can imagine, if we go through them like we did on uh, atherogenesis in the arterial wall, it's going to get ugly. So the, if you want a simple answer, in general, the amount of cholesterol you eat has nothing to do with your ApoB level in the system and certainly nothing to do with coronary outcomes, with one exception. If you happen to be a hyperabsorber of cholesterol because you got screwed up genes for Neiman Pick C1 like one or ABCG5 G8, then more dietary cholesterol will be absorbed than ordinarily would. So if I knew you were a hyperabsorber of cholesterol and there are blood tests that easily show that to me, I would tell you reduce your cholesterol in the diet. But if you don't have that genetic disturbance, I would tell you to enjoy your eggs. You know? And it would be the same thing with phytosterols. If you're a hyperabsorber, you avoid phytosterol supplements like the plague because then you're absorbing a sterile that the human body does never wants to see, phytosterols. You know? so it, it's a really cool topic. I love it, having written books about it and studied it for so long. Hmm. So is high HDL, given that kind of, that backdoor into HDL, is that a potential sign it's that you might be a hyperabsorber? It's a poor man's marker of hyperabsorption of cholesterol. Now, most people who have high HDL cholesterol are not overabsorbers of cholesterol. But if you came to me and all I had was a lipid profile and I saw LDL cholesterol is high, but LDL, HDL cholesterol is also high, at least I ought to be thinking, does this person, is, are they a hyperabsorber of cholesterol? Because if I knew that with more certainty, the drug of choice for them would be a zetamibe, a cholesterol absorption blocker, not a statin, which has you know, can worsen absorption of cholesterol. It certainly doesn't cure it. So I think a high HDL cholesterol should suggest that to you, but then you've got to do the more definitive test. And look, if you have, you're a hyperabsorber and your ApoB is normal, who cares? About 20% would have uh, levels of the absorption cholesterols that would be in the top 20th percentile of the population cut points. And you could then do genetic studies. Is it a Neiman pick problem? Is it an ABC G5 G8 problem? Sometimes you find nothing, but you know, they're a hyperabsorber, and it's an intricate process. There's other things at play also, including what I just mentioned, a sterification of cholesterol in the gut and incorporation into ApoB48 or through an ABCA1 efflux transporter or the, the, intestine has the g5g8 that evicts cholesterol so there's so many variables yeah but if i measured absorption markers and they're high you're a hyperabsorber. and if your apob is high the logical way to reduce apob there if you want to go down the monotherapy route is is etamide you know block the absorption of cholesterol there's not much you can do dietary wise to block absorption outside of what you just suggested fiber lactobacilli uh, uh, you know, yogurt. So on the individual level, then to answer that question, it's really, well, it depends on your genes and you could probably run a little mini experiment on yourself and see how do you respond to a food like eggs, for example? Well, yeah. For people who can't afford the test that, because they're more expensive tests that check absorption, fine, take a Zetamide. If it didn't work, you're not a hyperabsorber. If it works spectacularly, case closed. 
one more question on on HDL there. If if HDL, if one of the primary purposes of HDL is to kind of get excess cholesterol from cells or tissues and and sort of uh, hand it to LDL, why why are why are we seeing HDL pick up some cholesterol from the enterocytes, and and why not why isn't the body just pushing that cholesterol back out through the the G five G eight receptor and excreting it? Well, it would be if that person had hypercholesterolemia. Those nuclear transcription factors in the intestine that regulate expression of ABCA1, ABCG5GA, being the LXR especially, would downregulate the ABCA1, and that person would stop. If, if that person has too much cholesterol in their system, they would stop effluxing cholesterol from the enterocyte to the HDL, and yet they would force it out to G5GA to the gut lumen. So again, it's the nuclear transcription factors that sense the cellular milieu, and they tell the genes what to do. So we do have defenses built in against that. And the other thing is, no matter what your HDLC is, low or high, other than a vague suggestion, and maybe you can't bet anything on an HDL cholesterol level. It's just not a helpful lab metric. And lab metrics uh, will be something that we come back to in, in the next conversation. Yeah, I hope we do, because that, that's going to do the most good to most people for them to better understand what their everyday tests are and to know when their doctor is giving them a line of bull or not. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll make sure we come back to the hyperabsorber and and what those exact blood tests are that people can can look at that one too. Tom, this has been uh, a, a masterclass. Honestly, I'm I'm so grateful for your work, um, the attention to detail, the patience, the 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 passion, the clear passion that you have for this. It makes it really enjoyable to to study. Was there anything that you feel like we missed in this part of the conversation? Oh, there's always more you miss, but uh, we've given them a lot of good facts. Mm -hmm. Look, anybody listening to this, if you want good health care, you got to be your own advocate. So you listen to experts. If Simon brought him on, he's he's not going into the phone book to figure out who to interview. He knows who the more trustworthy, respected people in the field are. So uh, the fact that he dragged me into this podcast, I must have something on my resume that gives me some credibility. (laughs) But there's a lot of complexities we talked about here. And look, I'm 77 now. It took me 30, 40 years to know all this stuff. And as you learn half of the stuff you learn, you're going to have to forget because it's wrong and you learn new stuff. So don't think you're going to master lipidology overnight. But some of these concepts, if you really think about it, and look, even me babbling at a high level, Simon summarized everything I said pretty easily. Now he does a lot of interviews. He's a smart guy too, but all of this is readily available if you follow the right people. And uh, I, as he mentioned, I've got a Twitter presence. Follow me. And there'll be stuff you won't know what I'm talking about, but there'll be a, I put stuff for everybody there. And some of it you're going to say, I think I understand this. I'm at, at Dr. Lipid, by the way, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first step. That's first base. Everyone needs to follow at Dr. Lipid. Yeah, you, it's self-study. We all have to be better students than we are. And that's the only way to master anything. But part of being smart is knowing in today's world where the internet, for every Tom Dayspring, there's three bizarros out there. So be careful. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, wild, wild west. Well, (laughs) thank you. 
Thank you again, Tom. Uh, I think you mentioned before this podcast would would not have happened uh, if it wasn't for cholesterol. So maybe we can say this podcast is proudly supported to you today by cholesterol. Um, <laughs> I look forward to to the upcoming conversations that we have on measuring heart disease risk and and then the interventions that. Um, Thank God for cholesterol. No risk. life without it. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Tom. There we go, friends. Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.